Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and on Wednesdays this year, I've been doing a regular segment about the Long Island serial killer, but just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that I had been following a true crime case for the past couple years, and that is the murder of Dwayne Simmons, which was committed by Francisco Alejandro Mendez, and he was recently convicted. However, just over the weekend, the sentencing came through, and Frankie Mendez, as he's known as, received life in prison for the crime that also involved the attempted murder of NFL athlete Corey Ballantyne. So it looks like that one is more or less coming to an end, and a closure will be somewhat obtained for the family of Dwayne Simmons. And I would also like to remind you guys that you can download this program for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. It's under the same name, Black Box Online Radio, but the easiest way to find it is in the description box. You can download the audio as a pure podcast, take it on the go, anywhere and anyhow. If you would like to download the video version with the images, you can use YouTube Premium, but that you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. And a great way to support all of these efforts is to go over to buymeacoffee.com and consider making a contribution to the show, and you'll get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays, talking about the Zodiac Killer. And as always, please like and subscribe if you would like to follow along with all of these true crime discussions. Monday, talking about the Zodiac Killer. Wednesday, the Long Island Serial Killer. And Friday is an Anything Goes, where any subject is fair game. So to begin with the Long Island Serial Killer, I think we need to first go back through the previous episodes and look at the timeline of the Lisk murders. The Long Island Serial Killer is really difficult to discuss because we don't necessarily know when this person first started operating or when their activities ceased, or is there more than one serial killer at play? For example, it's possible that the first confirmed crime of the list was in 1996 with the Fire Island Jane Doe, and at that time, only her legs were discovered. She was murdered and obviously dismembered. Her skull was discovered years later once they uncovered a serial killer graveyard, but at first they only had those two uh, pieces of her body. The second crime occurred in 1997 when Peaches Jane Doe and Baby Doe were murdered. They were a mother and a daughter. Then, three years after that, Valerie Mack was murdered by the Long Island serial killer in the year 2000, and also mutilated. Then, in three years later again, Jessica Taylor is murdered by the Long Island serial killer, and not only is her is her body mutilated, but she also had a tattoo that was cut up in somewhat of a rough way. Now, after the murder of Jessica Taylor, it's not until four years later that there's a possible Long Island serial killer crime, and that is the murder of Cherry's Jane Doe, which took place in the early part of 2007. I'm including her because I believe that Cherries was murdered by the Long Island serial killer, even though the authorities do not seem to have all the evidence in place. Then later on in 2007, Maureen Brainerd Barnes is murdered, and this is when the either there is some type of psychological shift going on with the killer because he stops mutilating the bodies, he stops dismembering the bodies of the victims because Maureen Brainerd Barnes is strangled, and she becomes the first known victim 
of the Gilgo Four, the four women who were found on the north side of the Ocean Parkway, uh, at least two of them were wrapped in burlap, and they were found in somewhat of a brush-like area, and the authorities believe that the burlap was used to aid in the decomposition. Now, we're going all the way to 2009 now, so as you see, 13 years from the Fire Island Jane Doe to today's episode, The Murder of Melissa Bartolome. And I also really noticed that the news coverage surrounding um, Melissa's case was quite different than some of the earlier victims of the Long Island serial killer because she was part of the Gilgo Four, and it almost feels like the news and the media and the articles are only referring to the four victims at once. But there is um, an article about her from CBS News that provides the introduction. Melissa Bartolome was 24 years old when she went missing in July of 2009. In the weeks following her disappearance, her 15-year-old sister was terrorized by a series of frightening phone calls made by a man on Melissa's cell phone. Police believe that the man who made the calls is, in fact, Melissa's killer. And like most of the episodes here in this ongoing series, I would like to read the segment about Melissa that is on gilgocase.com. July 12, 2009, Melissa Bartolome was last seen outside her apartment on Underhill Avenue in the Bronx. She had arranged for a $1,000 date with a client the next night somewhere on Long Island. After her disappearance, her sister received several phone calls from a man using Melissa's cell phone and claiming to be her killer. Melissa's body was discovered on December 11th of 2010 beside Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She had been strangled. And once we get to the stories of the Gilgo Four, much like the episode on Maureen Brainerd Barnes, there are details that people are able to recall I told you that Valerie Mack was murdered by the Long Island serial killer in 2000, but she was unidentified for 18 years. It wasn't until 2018 that they were able to identify her using DNA. So even if people could tell stories about Valerie Mack and what she was doing right before her disappearance, I mean, you're dealing with someone's memory 18 years ago versus only two years ago or a year and a half ago, and people would be able to remember the events much more clearly for the victims of the Gilgo Four. But you might have noticed that there are some details that are shared in this very small set section of text here on gilgocase.com. The first is that she had arranged to have a date with a client. I mean, Melissa was an escort. But she um, did this rather regularly, and I'll share some more things about that later on. With Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she would come from Connecticut to New York City and she would rent a motel room and the clients would come to the motel and it was very abnormal so they say for Maureen to go out and see a client on an outcall service. With Melissa it seems like it's a little bit more common and she would use some more tactics like approaching people on the street as opposed to um, only operating on the internet. But um, there are going to be many details that will be shared about um, Melissa's life in a future um, article. However, this one talks about her apartment on Underhill Avenue. I believe that's actually a basement apartment, and she came up the stairs. But you also notice that somebody has made taunting phone calls using Melissa's cell phone and calling her sister. These types of details do not seem to be present 
in the crimes that happened from 1996 until 2007, referring to up to the point when Cherise Jane Doe was murdered. And the authorities seem to think that there is a single serial killer, and I'm not going to challenge them too harshly on that. However, when it comes to the way this person is operating, that's a very big difference. Not only is the person no longer mutilating and dismembering the bodies, now making a taunting phone call, but the reason I brought up the authorities was because they say that, oh, none of the victims had the opportunity to make a phone call, none of the victims had a driver, none of the victims were able to uh, get in contact with anyone, and that really bothered me when they released Shannon Gilbert's 911 call, they shared all those pieces of info. I mean, with some of the victims, like Fire Island Jane Doe, Peaches Jane Doe, Cherries Jane Doe, even to this day, we don't even know their names. How on earth do they know that they weren't able to make any phone calls? Or how, how on earth do we know that they didn't have a driver? I mean, we don't know who these people are. More importantly for this discussion, how do we know that the killer didn't call someone in their family? I mean, we simply don't. So I just wanted to put that out there. But this does appear to be something that is quite different than the Manorville Butcher crimes that occurred from 1996 to possibly 2007. And yes, they did discover a serial killer graveyard in the uh, most recent decade. However, the authorities were very well aware that a serial killer was operating and they did call him the Manorville Butcher. But with the murder of Melissa Bartolome, there is um, an article that is on Slate.com that really tries to share a lot of insights into her life. And this was one of the most detailed ones. And it was written by Robert Kolker. I've seen his name around several times. Perhaps you've even seen it um, in uh, Lost Girls. But he is even contributing articles as well. It's called First Lost, Then Murdered. This shares some insights into Melissa's life, and is coming from a close friend using the name Kritzia, K-R-I-T-Z-I-A, Kritzia. Kritzia Lugo was small and round, with lush lips and big eyes, and a gift for Gab. In Times Square, she was known as Mariah, and Melissa was known as Chloe. Friday and Saturday nights were slow, too many families were clogging up the sidewalk, but almost every other night, Melissa and Kritzia would hang out there, Lace, they would hang outside a club called Lace, the strip club, on 7th and 48th. Melissa would have a cigarette and Kritzia would have weed. Their pimp's names were Blaze and Mel. Standing a safe distance away, across the street, around the street corner, waiting for men to come out. In, in New York, the pimps keep an eye out, even if from afar. When Kritzia first met Melissa, she thought that she wouldn't last a year. Melissa proved her wrong. She was in New York for three years until 2009, when Kritzia heard that Melissa had moved to Buffalo, New York, and was ready and waiting to take her home. She wondered why she was here at all. Melissa would only say, I'm here because I want to be here. In those moments, Kritzia thought that maybe she and Melissa were such kindred spirits. Melissa Bartholome was brought up in Buffalo's Kensington Bailey neighborhood, a neglected part of town that long ago housed a state university campus, but crumbled after it closed, becoming a refuge for street gangs. Her family was one of the few white working class holdouts 
Her mother, Lynn, was 16 years old when Melissa was born. As a little girl, she was brash and outspoken, and despite her pixie looks, formidable, quick to shout out someone twice her size for looking at her the wrong way. Self-defense was a necessary life skill in Kensington Bailey, and when Melissa's assertive side first showed itself in elementary school, Lynn's only rule was for Melissa not to hit first. Melissa spent a few years as a teenager in Texas with her stepfather and sorry, with her father and stepmother, but returned to Buffalo to finish high school. She wanted to be a hairstylist. Melissa talked about watching Lynn work so hard as a single mom and how that affected her. And to share some other uh, details about Melissa Bartholomew, she uh, did go through some training to become a hairstylist, and she would frequently talk about that to her clients, and she would um, more or less graduate from beauty school. And back to the article. In 2006, Melissa and her boyfriend Jordan took their first trip to New York City. Jordan's uncle owns a recording studio, Melissa told Lynn, who uh, did not like Jordan. They came back a few days later. They turned around and went to New York for a few weeks after that. Upon return, Melissa announced that she and Jordan were going to move there. I met this guy. His name was Johnny Terry. He offered me a job cutting hair. Lynn tried to talk her out of it, but she had been in this place before and felt that she had less influence on her now. But perhaps you'll remember from the section on gilgocase.com that Melissa was supposed to meet a client and get $1,000. So let's hear some about that. On July 11th of 2009, Melissa sent a late night text message to Amanda to firm things up for another visit to New York. The next day, the security cameras of her local bank recorded Melissa depositing $1,000 into her account. The proceeds, it is believed, from a date she had earlier in the night, and she withdrew $100 before she headed out the door. Melissa was seen alive on the afternoon of July 12th, sitting on a curb outside her building. Her phone records show that she called Blaze, remember that's her pimp, that evening for a phone call that was under a minute long. It was, it might have gone to voicemail. Blaze would later say that Melissa had lined up another $1,000 date the next night somewhere on Long Island. He said he even knew the place and knew the John, but he said that Melissa was working on her own. He'd offered her a ride, but then she declined. And that is um very confusing, and for me, as somebody who is just some type of outside observer, I think that he means that he was her pimp, but this was some type of night off, or this was something that she had orchestrated on her own, or they had some type of arrangement where he was not going to get a cut of the money, and he says very clearly that she was going out without a driver, but if he knows whom she was going to see, why is there such a giant mystery going on? And what could have possibly um, happened to Melissa? I mean, did that person get checked out and that person didn't do it? Did she get some other type of solicitation when she was out on Long Island? Was somebody following her from the city? And then after she left, this client approached her and asked her if she wanted to earn some more money. I simply don't know. I mean, I do think that that's very weird. And we always have to bear in mind that somebody like Blaze here, the pimp, might not always be giving accurate information because this makes no sense at all. If he knows what she was doing, where she was, and whom she was with, then, I mean, 
I'm really feeling a little bit clueless here, but if you want to add some clarity to the com in the comment section, you can put your ideas down below. What do you think he's talking about there? Back to the article. The next day, when Melissa stopped returning all calls and texts, Lynn and Jeff called Amanda's trip and began called off Amanda's trip and began phoning local hospitals. They tried to file a missing person report, but for three days the police deflected them. They said that Melissa was 24 years old and had no history of mental illness and no prescriptions. Just because her family couldn't find her didn't necessarily mean that she was missing. I think that that's very odd because, as I understood, there is this very weird misconception out there that you have to wait 48 hours to file a missing persons report. All through my childhood, adolescence, and into early adulthood, I thought that was the case because of media. But once I started looking into true crime cases as an adult, I learned very quickly that that is mostly an urban myth that you have to wait 48 hours to file a missing persons report. But I, this is one thing that does appear to be true when someone says, I mean, they're an adult, they have the right to walk away on their own free will and their own accord. I um, think that that's what the police were um, stating, but obviously Melissa would end up murdered and she was she did not leave willingly. Only then would a subpoena allow them to access Melissa's phone records, canvas the neighborhood, and pull a DNA sample from her toothbrush. That was when they learned that her phone records showed access to her voicemail on the night of her disappearance, and the calls were traced to a tower in Massapequa, Long Island. Only after that, nearly two weeks after she went missing, would the police visit nearby hotels such as the Budget Inn and the Best Western to speak to the staff and review the security tapes, and they found nothing. It would be 18 months until Melissa's body would be the first of four uncovered by one another in the sand dunes of the Gilgo Beach, wrapped in burlap. The Long Island serial killer case remains unsolved even now, and six more sets of remains have been discovered, and they still await identification. The first four bodies were identified as women in their 20s, just like another woman, Shannon Gilbert, who mysteriously disappeared from where the four were found. Oh yeah, I mean, Shannon Gilbert actually disappeared from Oak Beach, and she was... um running up and down the area, and she was found on the south side of the Ocean Parkway, uh, wading through the marsh, more or less, and it's quite possible that Shannon passed away because um, either drowning or some type of uh, succumbing to the elements if, if she were just extremely disoriented, and there was water in the marshy area, which they believe that um, Shannon may have been experiencing. But that is still, um, it really isn't completely clear what happened to Shannon Gilbert. And the other victims that were found were Maureen Brainer, Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amberlynn Costello. Those are the three other members of the Gilgo Four. All of them took part in modern-age prostitution in which clients are lured with the simple tap of a computer keyboard. And that's why one of the alternative nicknames for the Long Island serial killer is the Craigslist Ripper. And that appears to be one of the few reasons why these crimes appear to be somewhat connected. Even if we don't know everything about the Fire Island Jane Doe, or about peaches or cherries, there's a very high chance that they were working in some type of escort-related um, business. And the Long Island serial killer is preying on sex workers. I mean, I think that that's so weird, though, if in 2009, though, about Melissa, if she's going out to meet a client, and they know who the person is and where he lives, but then... She, um, 
well, what did she do after that? I mean, like, if that person didn't have anything to do with her death, was she abducted? As I said, was somebody following her? Or did someone make another arrangement? Was there was there a different person lined up to meet her that Blaze didn't know about? That's weird. The method is easier than street walking and seduction is frequently done on the internet. It's almost like an ATM. Post the ad, the phone rings, seconds later it can be arranged, but the dangers are less transparent. Each of the dead women made the decision to do this for money, but for intensely personal reasons. In fact, in those early days in 2009, long before the bodies were discovered, the police in Buffalo might not have stirred into action at all, if not for the fourth day of Melissa's disappearance on July 16th. Amanda's cell hadn't rung in Buffalo when her she saw her sister's caller ID number going off, and she said Melissa when she answered the phone. Instead of her sister's voice, she heard another controlled, comfortable, soft-spoken male. Oh, this isn't Melissa. He began to taunt her. So, I mean, like, that really raises the question. Is the person who murdered the Gilgo Four responsible for the other crimes attributed to the Long Island serial killer? Or are, are people just frequently seeing escorts on Long Island and there is more than one serial killer in operation? Because I believe it was Tyler Grover who wrote this out in the comments section. It doesn't appear immediately that Shannon Gilbert was murdered by the Lisk, but why are there all of these coincidences? It's not like she was some type of 39-year-old man who was a finance executive who was found dead on the south side of the Ocean Parkway. No, she was a woman of a similar age, working the exact same profession. She was an escort. I mean, to have all of that fall in line, yet somehow her death wouldn't be connected. When you say it like that, it just sounds like an overwhelmingly high chance that it is not just a coincidence and that Shannon was killed by the Lisk, or that somebody somebody drove her, I mean, by like, like drove her to her wit's end and the Long Island serial killer was responsible for her death, even if she wasn't immediately strangled. So, I mean, it really is a very perplexing mystery. And I find that with a lot of these true crime cases, the more time you spend examining them, the more questions you have rather than answers. But I think that there are three major possibilities as to why we could have some of these differences. Why would a serial killer commit mutilations. I mean, we're talking about decapitating the bodies, sometimes cutting up their tattoos, removing arms and legs, like severing the limbs of the victims. This person is dismembering the bodies of the victims from 96 to at least 2003, from the Fire Island Jane Doe's murder to the murder of Jessica Taylor. Why would they, this person then deviate from that method and then begin strangling the victims? Three possibilities. Number one, he chose to stop on his own free will, getting older, less energy. At that point, he had been getting away with it for more than seven years. It just simply was not necessary, or that this person just didn't feel that there was much of a point to do that anymore, so he chose to. The second one is um, one that I have proposed, which I haven't heard in any other source, and that is that he experienced some type of injury that made it more difficult for him to commit the dismembering and mutilating acts. 
I'm thinking about something like a leg injury. Maybe he's wearing some type of knee brace and he's not very mobile. But the victims were strangled, so he was still capable in that way. And then that would also support my theory that the that the Cherries Jane Doe is a genuine victim of the Long Island serial killer because she is um, dismembered in 2007. And then Maureen Brainerd Barnes is murdered only a few months later. I really think it's only about four months later. This person wanted to try committing crimes in a different way just to even see if he could pull it off or just to, to experience something different because that's heightening the thrill kill. And the third one is the one that I gave um, a shout-out to Classic Chevy Cat for her observation when she said, did this person possibly have access to a particular type of kill room, like a garage that had a sink and running water and maybe a commercial freezer, and maybe just some way, somehow, the Long Island serial killer no longer had access to that same room, maybe that just no longer in possession of the house or no longer frequents that area where that particular house is or the kill room is. So then it was um, too risky to try and commit these types of dismemberments. And then that's the reason why he chose so he lost access to his kill room. And if you think of another possibility about why there are these um, differences between the earlier Manorville butcher crimes and the Long Island serial killer crimes, so, such as the Gilgo Four, including the murder of Melissa Bartholomew, you can weigh in in the comment section down below, share anything that you would like, say, um your two cents on the subject. I would love to read your uh, comments and messages. But some people are heavily convinced that this is a multiple killers operation. And I'm not even going down the snuff ring, thrill kill club theory, but just that there was a serial killer called the Manorville Butcher who operated from 96 to 2007. And then in 2007, another serial killer started, and this is the real Long Island serial killer whom we know today, and it's just a convenient dumping ground. And with Cherry's Jane Doe, they did point out that her body was found in a suitcase, and there was there were a lot of storms in the area, and the, the, the storm water could have pushed that suitcase from any different direction. And part of me is really hoping that the answer to this is not just that people are murdered outside of New York City and that this just happened to be a dumping ground for multiple serial killers, not even two, but maybe three or four, like some of the um, crimes like Cherry's Jane Doe aren't connected, and then the Kilgo Four is one serial killer, the Manorville Butcher is another serial killer, and this just happened to be a place where the bodies of multiple victims ended up. And then it's not even a, a, a real serial killer mystery at that point anymore. I mean, no, that's not fair, but I just meant to say that it's more just like a geographical phenomenon or a topographical phenomenon. It's just dealing with the way that the land is structured, and that's how these bodies are ending up there. But yes, absolutely, it is a serial killer mystery. But why Long Island? Well, um because it was just a convenient dumping ground. I mean, everybody is looking into this uh, stretch of Gilgo Beach, and they think that that's the clue to everything, because that's how the psychological profiles are, are, are composed. That's what I meant when I said it's not really part of the mystery. I mean, that would mean that all of the observations that people have made about profiling would be inaccurate. Oh, you have a serial killer who's um, who started somewhere between the ages of 20 and 34, 
and that he was either married or had a long-term girlfriend. He only commits the crimes when she is out of town or he's in a certain place. Maybe he's a seasonal worker, very uh, intelligent, but only average education. And he is someone who um, works in a trade, works in a manual labor job, someplace that gives him access to burlap, maybe access to a type of truck or van that he would use to transport the bodies pulls in escorts from the city, to, would originally take them to a particular house that had some type of arrangement, or maybe even like a, if he had an RV or a trailer or some place where he could commit these crimes. And then he lost that in 2007, so he began strangling them because it was easier to dispose of the bodies that way. I mean, it could be. It could be. But if it's true that there are just multiple serial killers in action... All of that profiling stuff means nothing. All of it. Because you'd have to start from back from the drawing board. And that would also mean, how did the Manorville Butcher learn about somebody else getting access to his serial killer dumping ground and just simply decide to stop? Okay, because Maureen Brainerd Barnes is murdered. Why would that drive the serial killer not to kill again? I mean, I really, I really don't have answers to that. It's a very bizarre mystery. But I will share one thing with you in conclusion. When there are very perplexing crimes, I often find that the answer is going to be very, very simple. And it's going to be something such as, oh, this is just a convenient isolated stretch on Long Island, and this is where, why this area was chosen. I really find that it's not going to be anything that is going to be super outrageous. But I would like to share some final details about Melissa, and that is that she seemed like a passionate, outspoken woman, and she definitely did not deserve to pass away in uh, this particular manner. So a big rest in peace to her and to all the victims of the Long Island serial killer or the Manorville Butcher. In a recent episode, somebody was talking about how they thought that they it wasn't good to talk about crimes that were involving prostitutes or sex workers, and they're making some insulting comments, and that is absolutely not welcome here on this channel. I mean, people were murdered, and they didn't deserve to die in this way, and absolutely it is not going to be tolerated or even allowed, and any type of abusive comment will be deleted, but I don't think that I will have to monitor you guys too many times, because... I think that, well, that firstly, that person has been now blocked and removed. So I just hope that if we're going to be discussing the case of the Long Island serial killer, as well as any of the other true crime cases, there'll be a certain amount of respect paid to the victims. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode here, and please share your theories about the Long Island serial killer and the murder of Melissa Bartholomew in the comment section down below. Feel free to visit the playlist that I have assembled for these episodes, and anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, and there's even a page for the show, Blackbox Online Radio, and as always, blackboxnid88 on Instagram. And I will share something with you guys. The Launchpad 1 listeners will sign off soon, but if you're listening to this on YouTube, much like last week, I will share with you the Instagram journal so you can See what that's like if you haven't heard it before, that bonus podcast on Instagram that I've always been talking about. 
So um, one more time, you can like and subscribe and visit some of the links in the description box to the Launchpad 1 listeners. I will see you next time. If you're listening on YouTube, stay put.